0: Hello and welcome to the swim brief. I am Chris DeSantis and my video is glitching right off the bat as usual, but we're back on track. I'm here with the inimitable Joel Rawlings. I'm, I'm great,
1: just trying to find my thesaurus. So
0: keep going. I need to, this is, this is becoming a new tra- tradition that I. Try to break out a thesaurus word oh, is that, to describe Yeah,
1: So, so, you, so you have yeah. that little calendar, like, phrase of the day thing?
0: Right, right. Okay. Right. I got to keep finding new ways to describe Joel that make him say, can I break out the thesaurus? So, you, you know, he, like, he, that's, how we, that's how we keep things fresh in our relationship.
1: Mission accomplished. All right. <laughs> so... Here's
0: where we decided to start today. There was an article uh, on SwimSwam yesterday. It talked about a research study that had been conducted. It was basically a case study. I mean, a case study was the way I would phrase it, of, of 12 former Division I swim coaches who had left the profession talking about, you know, what they saw as their reasons for leaving prof- leaving the profession, and then – You know, the spring season, I think for people who follow the collegiate job market, you usually expect there to be some pretty significant fireworks in the couple weeks that follow the NCAA championships. And things had been relatively quiet. And then this week, Tracy Slusser, the associate head coach of Stanford, quit her job, and Mike Bottom retired. Mm -hmm. So, you know... The state of college coaching, the state of the profession is something we talk a lot about here on the podcast. So I thought these news stories, and and maybe we'll get a little bit into the article, these news stories were just an opportunity for us to, I don't know, talk our way, problem solve, um, diagnose some of what's going on or what we see going on in the profession right now. We have a lot of coaches that listen to this. We have a lot of parents that listen to this. And I think, you know, it's helpful for for both sides to get some empathy um, for everybody involved in the situation because, you know, if you're a parent of somebody that is serious about swimming, thinking about swimming in college, you want that to be a good experience. You want good people to be there to meet them on the other end. And you want those people to be in a good, healthy place um, and likewise, like if you're like us and you, um, are a professional zoom coach, you know, you want there to be, uh, you want to feel like the people at the top of our profession, um, that there's something, that there's something to aspire to still up there. And I think that's a little bit challenged right now. As I, as I look like, if I read this, if I read the summary of this research article, or I think about, um, some of the atmosphere right now. I don't know, where, where, where's your head at just looking at all of
1: this? Yeah, just a uh, little bit, we've talked about kind of the profession and we've brought these things up in the past as far as the stress, but um, one of the things is, is I'm starting to look at it a lot more too is the financial aspect of it. You know, uh, as you look at some of these positions, uh, like take Stanford for instance, wh- whatever they can pay is not as much as the, the tech industry can pay. So, not saying that all of a sudden she's going to jump right. to that, but I'm talking about you want an apartment, you want a house. Some 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 18 year old YouTube slash tech billionaire just bought all of them. You know there there isn't much place. Right. So obviously Stanford has like um, you know uh, housing on campus for staff, but you know the trickle down effect. of where, where does the assistant to the assistant swimming coach lie on the staff housing roster? You know or, or in, in other areas, especially, I'm just thinking right now, off the top of my head, being in the West Coast, like looking at how much housing is, you know, from Portland all the way down to San Diego, along the coast. So if you're at, you know, we always pull out the 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 iron, you know, iron horse kind of card, like, well, you know, he's making really good money as the head coach of, like, well, what about the Division Three coaches? You know, there's a, there's a lot of Division Three coaches along yeah. the West Coast. Again, housing is, is through the roof, and you want to get in a good school district with your son or daughter, that's through the roof. And so a lot of these uh, positions that, that become available, basically it's like either someone going to be like 22, 23, right out of college going, hey, maybe I'll I'll get in there and live like a, a college student, or you're going to be like someone who's retired and has a pension to already live in, in, in from the area. It's kind of like with the movie industry right now, it's either the $50 million movie movie or it's the... Eight million and under art house movie. There's nothing in the middle because there's no way to make money. It's the same thing with a lot of these college positions that are opening up. Either some of this can afford to just move on a dime. They don't have the family. they be able to just go into an apartment, single bedroom studio, whatever it is, and, and eat, work, drink, live, swimming, or the retiree. There's not a lot in the middle for like you know, average people like you or I where you have a kid or two and you, you just can't afford it. And so I think there's a lot of stress. Right. As far as that goes, as far as like where that market is in these housing areas, which puts a lot of stress financially on the system. Again, you're, like state schools, you're capped. It's it's not like all of a sudden there's there's going to be more money coming into a state system. Uh, the private schools, it's it, there just isn't that much money right now, especially right now. The, the schools I've talked to, they, they see this um, enrollment cliff coming in the next couple of years where they really are anticipating a very, very steep decline in enrollment across the board for private schools. And I've seen uh, a couple smaller private schools starting to shutter up and just, that's it. They're they're going out of business. And I guarantee in five more years, it's going to be a lot more of these smaller schools that go out of business too.
0: And you think that that, okay, sorry, that's interesting. We actually haven't talked about that outside of the podcast, but that enrollment cliff. I mean, is your perception of that, that this is going to be in response to just the, like, completely out-of-control 30-, 40-year rise in the cost of going to college that that, that bubble is kind of going to break and that, you know, the, the, the richest schools, the ones that are the most desirable, the ones with the, you know, tiny acceptance rates and all that stuff, that's not really going to affect them because they can always backfill, you know. But, like, if you're at the fringe, if you're expensive and you're not necessarily, you know – uh, that desirable, or, or if you look at it from the college perspective, selective, like, and, you know, certain people start going like, why am I paying 80 grand a year to go to college, That that they're anticipating that, 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 that system is finally going to start to break.
1: Right. I, I think this is a, you know, basically a rabbit hole. We can go down with a whole another podcast, but, but right. it does tie back into the coaching aspect. So like endowment Uh, driven schools are are usually going to be okay. Tuition-driven schools are the ones that are hurting because exactly like you said, I think out of COVID, a lot of people stopped and kind of looked at the degrees they had and and the amount of debt that they have. And um, I worked at a a public school for years, and um, one of the people that came through those recruiting, they were looking at public school because they were interested in education and not to take away anything from like a liberal arts degree or, or the more expensive private colleges. I mean, there's a lot of things you get outside of just your degree, obviously. However, um, for this person, she's going to have to take out a, a sizable student loan. And so she was like, if I'm taking out more loans than my first year salary, then I'm, I'm going to be in debt for a long, long time. And I don't want to do that. So she wanted to go to a school where basically tuition was going to be lower than her, her, her salary was going out. And so a lot of those schools that are going to be in that, that trouble are, are going to be, like I said, tuition-driven schools where people are starting to go – if I'm going to go into this field, I, I can't have that kind of a debt. And so to go back to coaches leaving the sport, and this article is mainly about Division One, but I'm, I think obviously more about Division Three, just because I was in it for so long, that it's become a lot of the coach's responsibility to take on admissions role of, of enticing people to apply, getting people to apply, and justifying your job where that you have, Basically, a team roster size large enough that it's it's covering the cost of your salary and it's covering the cost of the team, and and then some. Uh, and, and so that if you're not okay. justifying it, that's a pressure on you to get out there and hustle even more.
0: Yeah, I want to use what you just said as an opportunity to transition to talk a little bit more about Division Three coaching because it's something that doesn't always get any attention mm-hmm. on here. And you and I have been talking about. I've actually. Talked to six Division three college coaches in the last couple weeks, and I've some. There's some common threads from all those conversations that I pulled together. But the thing that you just mentioned, where you know, where Division three college coaches almost become a member of the admissions department for these schools. I have a great like immediate anecdote. I was talking to one of these coaches, and um, he'd been where he had been a long time. Like most Division three coaches it was a combined program you know he's he's in an eight-lane pool um, and he had about 50 kids on the team and actually you know like from the administration level on down they said we'd like there to be more kids on the swim team right and he said okay great like me too I would also love to have more kids on the swim team but like where the 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 thing that will actually create that happening is not just like we can just we could find 10 more kids to put on the swim team i suppose but he actually convinced them to split that division three program so actually it's my former teammate who's now the coach of the women's team he became coach of the men's team and they got that roster size up to 60 people and the reason i bring up the story is because i can already see on your face you're like oh that's not where I thought this was headed whatsoever. Like that, that an athletic director was going to actually see the value if that was their goal, instead of just saying, now, why don't you just coach a combined team of 60 people? Like you can do it right. Which, which is where I, I hear the trend and what I see that the the common thread with a lot of these division three coaches is the job was never a great paying job. But at at a certain other time, I think, in history, there was a lifestyle that went with it. And that lifestyle is getting blown to pieces, you know, um, that the job just metastasizes and grows and grows and grows and grows. And pretty soon you both have a job that doesn't pay very well. But as 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 it says in this research article, coach role dominance, I read that piece as, you know, the fact that you are a swim coach comes to take over every other part of your life. And then you're not compensated very well for it. Whereas I think at certain time in history, the way that this made sense was nobody was getting rich off of swim coaching, but like, you know, you could build, it wasn't, it wasn't such a dominant part of your life and all the prevailing pressures, um, on these coaches are just to, in order to be competitive, make it a more dominant part of your life, and we're not going to give you any more resources. So you got the only resource you have is your own time, and and take that time, and 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 put it, you know, put find a way to put more into it, than than you used to. Um, that's where I see some of this stuff heading, and that's definitely concerning for me as somebody who cares about the sport of. Um, sorry, the profession of coaching because it just doesn't. It 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 it's it's got to have a limit at some
1: and, point. And it, what you're saying too is us, we as the coaches are our own worst enemies. I remember seeing in a lot of the NCAA compliance meetings we'd have it to start every year, uh, and a lot of the rules are in place because of football and basketball. You know, in, in their recruiting violations because there's so much more money there, there's so much more incentive for them to push through so and we're following the same. And basically, what we needed was legislation to protect ourselves from recruiting all of the time, to be all the time setting up. So, and right. so the, part of it was obviously that they didn't want a student athlete to be getting text after text after text, call after call after call, all the way back to like however many years. But part of that too is it protects us because there's always someone that's going to be like, well, I'll do that kind of work. Like I was saying, again, a lot of these jobs are more expensive places. They might go to a younger applicant uh, because they're, they're able to afford to live like a, like a college student in a sense. But they also have the time to be able to do that. I remember you know, before I was married, too, that was that was the thing to do. It was always the time reservoir was the, the one where I could throw at a problem, where I would work really hard, and then, right. all right, I'll work two extra hours. And eventually, then I got married, and then it started coming back, like, all right, well, just pick one of the nights of the week where I'm not going to be available at all. You know, So we'd just pick, like, Thursday night, I'll make all my recruiting calls, like East Coast this time, West Coast at this time, et cetera. And, and just go through and do all of that. If I couldn't get it done, then just kind of accepting that uh, maybe this isn't getting done. But then at the same time, as a coach, you're, you're feeling ripped between the two worlds where you're like, I'm not doing enough because there's always more to do on the coaching side. And then you're also not doing enough as a parent or father or husband or whatever side for me. And then um, – so, I mean, part of that is, again, we, we there, there's, there's no governor. You know, that engine just keeps running and running and running. And then you don't realize, again, all of a sudden like Mike bottom. Now it's time to retire, which is strange obviously there's got to be something going on. We were just talking about how again, he just negotiated an extension then to retire. Um, I, I think with a lot of these coaches, Division one, Division two, division three is, is you look at the lifestyle choices that they made, and then you you look at what it is at the end, and that 's the part you know where I get older, I start to look at like what, what happens at the end you 've got a legacy you 've got all these people you've coach, which is great. Uh, what, what do you have for yourself? You know, what are you going to retire? Is It's like, all of a I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go fishing. I don't know. It's like, again, I, I, I didn't have hobbies. Yeah. I didn't have anything other than coaching. And so it, it lends right. itself to leading a very dysfunctional life.
0: Well, obviously in our text, I, I had a whole different way I want this conversation want, or wanted to take this conversation. But the, 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 what we've gotten on to now, I want to stay there for a second before I transition to that. Because, you know, I mean, I don't know what, um, what your situation was like growing up, but like my, my dad's 76 years old. He has not retired. If you talk about someone whose job is a dominant part of his life it has been a dominant part of his life and he was very much like the model for him was like as a as a man was like you invest in your career and like you do whatever it takes to be successful and then basically just keep doing that until you die like that was that was the way and i and i think as i've gotten older i just go that's not that's not what i want to do so i i don't think that i can emulate it i i can remember somebody who's really good to me in my career when i was working at georgia tech was mark bernardino i'll always have a soft spot for for dino okay and i remember i was talking to him at one of the acc meets behind the blocks and he mentioned his wife and he's like i'm just so grateful for her she made so many sacrifices for me to be able to do this you know and i was i was listening to it and i was like that's great You know i like and i love that you guys have that relationship but like i can't emulate Mm -hmm. that right there's no path for me there that's not i i i definitely entered into marriage with my wife not with the idea that like my career Mm -hmm. (laughs) and what i wanted to do would be dominant over both of our lives right and that that would take precedence over everything. And so I think there's, there's a bit of a generational shift here too. I mean, coaching, let's be frank, it's a um, profession overwhelmingly dominated by Mm men. Um, It's disproportionately men that are head coaches of places. And I think I see in a lot of this, you know, this sort of dual pressure that on the one hand, it's like, you know, compete and be, and let the job be dominant. And then, On the other end, you have a a social pressure, which, by the way, I think is good on men to, like, lead a more balanced lives, to be present, you know, with their kids, to be somebody that takes their kids to, you know, sports practice, that drops their kid off at school, that, you know, is there after school when their kid comes, that's doing stuff with their family on the weekend. So, like, you have these two things converging on each other, and... Nobody seems to really know what to do about it, you know? And and then I think you have the, – there's a whole other gender discussion to be had. I think some of the same pressures that I just talked about there are are at the core of why we don't have women in head True. coaching roles, right? Um, I don't know. Do you want to say anything about that before I pivot to the, to, to no,
1: the I th- next No, I, th- I think one of the piece. things, just to make it a short analogy or a short story of this, is, is I remember just – all the years I was at at the university is like you know you go to all these Hall of Fame banquets and things like that. And Remember, all all the athletes always first thing they do is they thank their parents for taking them to every practice, for being at every meet or every game or whatever it is. And any Hall of Fame coach first thing they they always thank is is their family for basically accepting the fact that you weren't going to be there. You know, and, and that's that's how all the right. speeches would always start. And, and so basically, who who's giving right. up the most for whom? And I think one of the things that we've done as coaches, or at least we've gotten away from this now, but I remember um, taking a coaching competitive swimming class in, in the university. You know, basically, it'd be all the basketball players would be in that class getting the EZA, and all the swimmers would be in that class getting the EZA. So there's always a weird weird mix of people in there. But uh, page one of the book was, you know, as the swim coach, and I showed this hub, you're going to be expert in physiology, sports psychology, this, 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 and it all leads into you. And it, and it was like, right. think about just how egotistical that is, where I'm going to know more than all these other experts because I coach this one athlete and I'm going to take on all these extra jobs for a $30,000 a year job. And again, not to the pay, you want to do it for your athletes, but I think what we found is basically taking on all those roles is actually detrimental to your athlete. It's also detrimental to you. Where all of a sudden you start taking on so many different things and going back to like why there's so many people are leaving the sport is, is again, we, we took on so much. And you see this any time where um, just, just as coaches in general, on, on, a, on a micro scale, you get to your conference meet or whatever the, the final meet is. It's, it's been a stressful season. All the coaches always get sick, like that week after. It's always like you've got adrenaline going for six months. And then you rest. Right. That's when all of a sudden your body's like you need to rest and you get sick. And I think after COVID, all the stress and all the adrenaline, and now we're getting that rubber band snapping back. We're also in all these coaches like, man, I need a rest. Because you're taking on the fears of COVID. You're taking on all these different practices. The nonstop paperwork, and that's what's also crushing this, crushes the sport is is the paperwork. Over the top, all these other things taking away from what you got on deck for. You know, if I were – enjoyed that kind of paperwork, I think I would have gone into accounting rather than swim coaching and I would actually make some money and be done at five. Versus again, the roles that we've taken on became so much. And I think now what we're gonna see is is that snapping where people are just going to stop and realize, I boy, I'm exhausted. I didn't even realize that. I need to step back. Yeah. So I want
0: to use that as an opportunity to talk about something else that I see as really um, putting some pressure on um, Division Three coaches especially because I think that, you know, like I, I swam in Division III. Um, I swam in the NESCAC, actually, which is the most restrictive, I think, sports conference <laughs> in America, right, with the tiniest little competitive season. You can't practice until November 1st. You essentially have a 13-week college swim season. It's a glorified high school season in terms of how, how long it is. Um, in terms of especially like what they can require and when a coach can actually be on deck working with athletes. And I always, you know, I've, I've, I've always been, I think, pretty honest about some of the advantages and disadvantages of that. I think the greatest strength of that system is, and you see that these schools actually are quite competitive in Division three. I mean, like Williams College traditionally is like a top five program in in the, at the division three NCAA meet, and they've had some of the most amazing performances, Amherst is in that conference as well. Um, they've got some long standing NCAA division three records um, coming out of those schools. Uh, you know, if you're going to be successful in those places, actually it's, it'll be because you've exercised a large degree of autonomy, right? That you, you know, we know that Summers at a certain level, like training or doing something to keep the ball moving forward year round is is extremely important. So if you think that, you know, you have 13 weeks where there's actually a coach, you know, standing over you watching what you're doing, then you've got athletes that three quarters of the year. Nobody's there telling you what to do. You you know, like to, to, to a large extent, you have to figure out what you're going to do with that time, how are you going to, how are going to keep something going on? Um, and you have a lot of, you have a lot of freedom. And I think in general, I mean, if you think about the transition, having now been in, in club swimming and also in college swimming, you know, going to college is a, for everybody is a transition of autonomy. You know, it's going from being in your parents' house for the most part largely to managing yourself and making this sort of semi-adulthood transition. And one of the things that I have observed, however, is that I think I think like a lot of athletes are coming into these systems not prepared for that autonomy you know they haven't come out of they haven't come out of a system that has trained them or given them the tools to make a lot of decisions for themselves and so when they get into this like situation where they have a lot more decisions to make for themselves they're really unhappy because it's not going the way that they want it to go right so even though they have this sense that like I should be able to determine my own, you know, uh, determine my own future and have more authority over what's happening here. Like I, I'm not happy with the way this is going. And I think the coaches are bearing a large brunt of that, right? Because, you know, when you're, when you're an athlete and you're putting, that's a big part of your identity and you're putting a lot of that into what you're, doing, like, you know, probably the the, the two things the school is going to do to figure out what your experience is like is, you know, when you finish a course, they're going to ask you to evaluate the professor. And when, you know, when you finish the swim season, they're going to go, hey, mm-hmm. how was how was swim team this year? And if you're like, I can tell you as somebody who is very unhappy on some of those days <laughs> where that questionnaire got handed out, it's an opportunity to just go off on anything that you don't like, um, uh, about the coach. And I don't know that it's necessarily always about, um, or often not about the coach themselves, but more about the athletes. If I look back on my own D3 time, a lot, I, I had a lot of issues with my coach and I've discussed them on here, but I also had a lot of issues with just where I was and um, that made it, that made it very hard for me to be in that environment. So I actually see there's, there's an opportunity right now, um, because there's definitely something missing in the system in terms of preparing people for that level of autonomy. And I guess the final piece I want to say about it is it goes along the themes of something we've discussed here, which is the professionalization of youth sports, so the idea that I have I, heard recently, and I'll bring this <laughs> into this final piece of this conversation, Sandpipers of Nevada, right, which is everybody's favorite club program in America. Um, I have heard fairly reliably that the majority, if not all of the kids that are on that top group of Sandpipers Pipers Nevada are homeschooled so that, you know, they can practice at the ideal times, you know, so that they can basically run things almost like you would a pro group of swimmers, but with kids in high school. And I just look at something like that and I go, okay, I mean, I, I'm at, I've i reached a stage in my life where I'm not judging, but I just go, I, I would never consider that an option, you know, with high school kids. And I guess this professionalization, like what it, at, 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 an, at a younger age, I think you can still set up a system where you make a lot of decisions for kids. But then what do you do? Because eventually people grow <laughs> and have to decide for themselves what it is they want to do. And if all they have done up to that point is had every little step prescribed for them, they're going to be really unhappy making decisions for themselves, like just shunted into a system like that. So that's, that's where I'm going to stop and, and let you jump in and give your, <laughs> give your autonomy yeah, to here.
1: So what you I, see. I just try to kind of like sift through what you're saying there is I, th- I think obviously we got the two parts. So you got the athlete, you got the, uh, the coach role. I remember I was talking to this one guy I met and he was, a. Uh, just had retired. He, he taught in a university for a long time, and he also taught 6th, 7th, 8th grade for a long time. And I said, well, that's kind of a strange mix. And he, he said that actually it was, he loved it because they were both exactly the same people. And I thought he was you know, making fun of immaturity of college students. And he said, no, because they're, they're both in, in very important transition points in their life. 6th, 7th, 8th, kind of figuring out who they are, and uh, college kind of figuring out what they want to be and what they want to do. And, and right. so th- that's the thing is there's a lot on the plate of, of kids today. And, and part of it, I think we, I don't know, I don't want to lay the blame at like the, the so-called helicopter parent or things like that. Where, but I think a lot of times if, if a lot of, uh, like you said, if, if, they are, if they haven't developed coping skills to like make decisions, if they haven't figured out things like that, then I think it becomes even more stressful time for them. And so as an athlete, you're right. Like a lot of times, like when I saw people that were like, you know, I wouldn't call it disruptive, but, you know, not exactly there for practice that day. I, I, I didn't assume as was like they were lazy. I assumed obviously they're, they're getting overwhelmed somewhere else. And, and so we try to talk right. about that. And so from that end is trying to understand as a coach what that is and how they're going to make these decisions for themselves, because for them. These are the biggest decisions ever. And and I would have athletes, like, you know, again, where they, they had cancer. I had athletes whose grandparents passed away or parents passed away. And you have athletes whose goldfish died. And the, the emotional response, all the same. Because for the, each one of them, it, it, it could be the most traumatic thing that they've, they've faced. Or it could be the biggest decision that they've ever faced. And, and you're there in the middle of doing that. And so I think part of what we've talked about, like, to – almost because we have two separate kind of conversations going on the coach's side. Obviously we've talked about the financial restraint. We've talked about the time commitment, but also the emotional commitment that a coach has when you're, when you're having all these problems, you always hear about like, you know, that some of the highest suicide rates are psychiatrists, you know, because they've got, you know, everyone brings their emotional baggage to them. Where do they go? Everyone brings the emotional baggage to the swimming coach. Right. Where do you go? You know, I'm not gonna dump this on my family or stuff like that. So you've gotta figure out a way to process it too. And I think again, it's it's everyone always wants one thing. They want like what vitamin do I need to take and I'll be healthy for the rest of my life? What's the one thing making coaches leave? Finance. You know, it it's but it's a thousand things. You know, right. right coaches they, didn't get yeah. into it for financial
0: We won't fix it just by raising the salaries of these right. coaches. Like it, that's it'll bandage one- it thing that's in a big system. It's right. in a big it'll, wheel. It'll,
1: band-aid it. it'll keep a few more in it, um, but eventually the, the, the root problems will still be there. And there's a lot of them. But going back to the athletes, exactly what you're saying is, again, if, if they don't have coping skills, uh, then it becomes very hard for them at a particular moment because now all of a sudden they're getting even less sleep. You know, they're, they're eating more erratically. You know, I, remember, I remember back in the early 90s reading about this, uh, some student like, was developing scurvy <laughs> because he was eating, like, absolutely no vitamin C at all. He was basically just living off of soda and, um,
0: right. and
1: like, you know, slices of pizza or something like that because he just turned loose for a little while. But, you know, again, not, not using that as a ridiculous ex- example, but the same thing as far as an emotional level. Like, you know, these kids, uh, and that's what they are, they're kids, and they haven't learned how to process a lot of different things. And so for them coming into a university environment or any environment, it's pretty hard to all of a sudden try to learn these coping skills on the fly. You know, it's like basically learning professional football while you're playing professional football. It's like, you know, will, they, will that player adapt? Probably, hopefully, but, but a lot yeah. don't. And then, like you said, at the end of the day, uh, it, it's a, you get these evaluations. that's the snapshot, you know, and this is how the coach did this year. You got four out of five. And so administration, like, all right, four out of five is fine. Every coach in the world is like, four out of five, where did I fail? You know, because we're all like we have to be five out right. of five, and I always looked at anything as a four. It's like, man, I got some haters in here. What's going on? And and um right. but it is. Right. It's one of those where, at the end of the day, the athlete had these expectations of where their life might be, and now all of a sudden you're kind of you know the closest to them because you see them far more than a professor does. You see them far more than their parents do, and so you become sometimes that either the punching bag or the surrogate parent or whatever it might be. Um, and and like you said, the professionalization of the sport is is changed in such a way where it's so all-encompassing. You know, the professor, you know, they feel bad about failing a kid or whatever it might be, but at the end of the day, they get to go home and that, that's the end of the day. They take, obviously, some home with them. But the co- coaches are expected right. to take a lot more home. You know, a professor that gives his all or her all and and, it, and it has this emotional connection with with their, their students, it, it's like th- they're seen as like th- th- you know something that's very, very special. And they are. They're very, very special. The coach is like, that's the norm. You're expected to do that. You know, so you're expected to take on far right. more than you are. So, so again, it, I think it, basically to summarize what you're saying is it's, it's unfair to both worlds. It's unfair to the student-athletes in that, again, it's, it's not the coach's fault that they don't have these coping mechanisms built in place. Um, but again, it's unfair to expect the coach to put this in. I said in many meetings where all of a sudden um, it came up on some of the evaluations. We had a whole staff meeting about the evaluations that they didn't feel they were being prepared for jobs enough. And so the baseball the baseball coach yeah. asked, "Well, so we're supposed to work on the resumes now too? So wh- which are my coaches? You want the, you want the first base coach <laughs> to start doing that to, to have some meetings? And may- maybe the pitching coach will have some you know mock interview sessions. And what what, what part of our 20 hours that we get to comp- to practice are we going to take out of so that we can do all of this? Like you said, with the NESCAC, you had 13 right. weeks within those weeks, you're only allowed 20 hours per week. What, what, what more are you going to give up? I think you're
0: actually allowed to require 10, 10 hours in the NESCAC. That's what it, that's, I mean. The, so the right. So like-
1: now you got exactly where are, where are we supposed to put more of this in? You know, again, and that kind of goes to the right. idea of uh, the, the, like, Kind of the the, the swim swimification of, of swimming of hey we'll show NC State climbing ropes and things like that so I got all these kids with YouTube videos like why aren't we climbing ropes because we're only going to be practicing eighteen hours this week you know what what, what set should we right. not do so that you can learn how to climb a rope you know because because you guys don't aren't able to do that yet um, what what part of your day because again once February ends I don't see you again what what part of your day do you want to work on that and, and so it becomes these expectation right. levels. Uh, are are over the top. And the same in the universities where you get all these speeches about football prepared me for life. It's like, you know, I bet 99 out of 100 times football prepared you for football. And then that one person who went back decided they had to make a speech. They thought, hey, how can I relate back to football preparing me to life? Again, I I I don't think it's as generalized as it can be. Yeah. See, I have a different
0: perspective on it. I, I think though, I think if I listen to that and I listen to your description of the baseball coach, you know the best way for football to prepare you for life is for them to just treat it as football practice. Like if they start making practice about – explicitly about something else, like you're losing the thread of what sports is. It's a learning opportunity, but it doesn't need to be – like you know it does it prepare you to be in a workplace and be a team player yeah but not by you know the pitching coach working yeah. on your resume right right like it, it if you if you do it right if you actually set up the atmosphere that like hey you know there's synergy in all of us getting here together and for you know me organizing how we're going to make this Um, everybody being at their best and sort of firing at all cylinders and we're going to compete with other people and, you know, all the sort of bedrock principles of it. But when you start, you know, when I think when people start panicking and going like, that's not enough, you know, just doing sports the way it should be, that's not enough. You got to do more than that. That's when we really start going astray from – from the core piece of it and and i, I just hear, to in listening to the experience of of these student athletes and coaches i think you know people who know who've been listening to me for a long time know that um i think it's undeniably a very big positive that you know there's become a much more robust conversation around like what is appropriate behavior from a coach and what is not? I think people know a lot better than they did 30 years ago what not to do. Sure. Right? Like there's a much longer list of knots. And, you know, if I look at like a college coach level, like I bet you're getting way more guidance from your athletic director. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Hey, this came back on an evaluation. You're not necessarily getting punished it, but like that shouldn't be in an evaluation. Shouldn't, 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 shouldn't. And I think that's net a positive, but nothing's free in this world. And part of what I'm seeing on the other end is, okay, um, coaching knowledge, which gets handed down from generation to generation, you got a whole generation of coaches who, you know, what they learn, how to do, how to coach, like what they learn for how to coach um, a lot of it is is very rightly off the books now, but nobody's come in and gone, okay. Now here's what to do. Mm-hmm. So you know it's just been like, don't, 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 don't. It's the same as if I went to practice and you know I had a bunch of swimmers in the water and I went, ah, oh, you got you, all your kicks are terrible. Don't kick like that. Well, like is that really going to help kids on my team to get better? No. Because they don't know what to do. Like, I haven't taught them anything about what to do. All I've done is say, the way you're doing things, bad. Stop doing that. Don't do that. Right? And so, like, I think even at the athlete level, okay, we've done great work to educate athletes about, you know, what they should draw a boundary on. Like, should you be able to question your, your coach on this and that and the other thing. Okay. But what is, what is good about coaching? Like what is, who's talking to athletes about um, what they, what they actually can get out of having a coach? Like what is, how is that helping them to do the thing that they want to do? Who's coaching athletes to be more coachable Mm -hmm. is I guess the question that I'm asking in the first place, because again, if I look back at my own experience, you know, I can set aside a certain list of things that I thought that my coach did was not right, but there was also a lot of situations where like, I could have made better out of it, but because I just, all I knew was like, I didn't want him to do that. You know, I wasn't looking for like what I, what did I actually want? What did I, what did I want out of a coach? You know, instead of trying to get to the end of the year and be like, ah, gotcha, you messed up this, right? To somebody whose, whose job has grown to three times the size it was while his salary stayed Mm -hmm. the same in the last 20 years, you know, like, where is the conversation around what does that person, actually do like what is good about having a coach and you know i i i I think that that is i think that's missing from the conversation the 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 the, the positive Mm -hmm. side of it and and the education um, from the youth sports side like i just don't see it in a lot of places preparing people for how to You know, how to make the most out of having a coach. I mean, I think about it a lot because, as you know, um, I'm competing and I don't have anybody standing on the pool deck. And I can tell you for sure I miss it. Like I can see what's missing there in terms of just me by myself doing whatever it is I want. Um, I would love to have somebody to just like observe what I'm doing. So I don't know. I mean, it's, um, I know maybe I'm not presenting a lot of, uh, solutions here, but it's actually one of the areas that I am most interested in working in. Like when I work one-to-one with people, one of my biggest goals is no matter who is on the other end, I want them to be able to work better with that person. Like, I think that's, I think that's, that's an essential. Um, because people are getting too wrapped around the axle of like this person's good. Or I like what this person's doing. Coaches are human beings. They have strengths. Um, You can figure out how to make those strengths work for you. And the people who are really successful in sports, they are very creative at figuring out, well, this is a conversation we had with the the best athletes you've ever had. They're very creative at figuring out how to make the coaching that they're getting on the other end work for them. Right. And, and too often it's just evolving into like, well, that didn't work and I'm upset and this coach has got to go now. Or, you know, like this coach is getting a bad review at the end of the year. Cause I, cause I, I'm not happy with how I, I do.
1: think, um, you know, looking at my own experience with swimming, it, it was, um, one thing that really actually helps in that regard was the, when I started high school, it was the only time I started so many clubs. The club program around us wasn't, wasn't a strong club. It was a small town, and we'd get a new coach every, every three months, six months, eight months. You know? and, and so yeah. I asked the high school coach, I'm like, I, you know, what am I supposed to do? I keep getting all these other coaches. What information should I be getting? And, and, he, and he said, you get the best information from each one of them then. And it was just like, well, how, how do I do that? It's like, you do what they ask you to do. You try it out. If it works for you. You hang on to that, and you get something new from the next coach. You, you, you use each coach as an evaluation tool for yourself, and so you have to kind of look more inward as far as what feels right, what doesn't feel right, what's going well, what's not going well, and, and become your own kind of test subject on the scientific experiment. And I, I would get this all the time when I would, you know, recruiting kids at the university. Like right away, they're like, well, I, I, I'm coming from a crappy program, or, or this or that. I was like, I'm coming from a program. It, 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 you know, as soon as, as, soon as they said yeah. that right away, it was always a, a pretty big red flag for me where I, I didn't want them. Because, again, it, it was already someone else's right. fault for them not doing something more. Um, and, again, if you have a set of eyes, if you have a stopwatch, it, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of, a lot of swimmers that are exceptional swimmers that, you know, their parents were their coaches, and their parents knew nothing about swimming. A lot of exceptional coaches knew nothing about swimming. Some of the, what I really kind of missed was that generation like when I was in college and high school? Like a lot of times, those university coaches were assigned a position. You're you assigned to be the swim coach. You're gonna be swim coach slash women's gymnastics slash shot put. Learn. And so what, right. what I enjoyed about that was that the, these uh, these coaches were were kind of more about movement. You know, they're about like what looks right, what doesn't look right, and is more of a communication because it became like a sounding board. Like. You know, and again, you just, they would say, "With, I see a lot of splash. I don't think that's really good. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Now, now figure that right. out. And that, I think that <laughs> ends up being the 180 of, of everything we've always done. Always we have to be right. Or else it goes into, there's a lot of splash. Figure that out. And, you know, and I think right now, like you're saying right. with athletes now, because the professionalization of the sport, YouTube videos, all these things are like, I've got this, 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 this. Everyone else now is like, but the, the best thing in the end is, how you internalize whatever's being told, not how you did your best imitation of Ryan Lochte's turns and Michael Phelps's butterfly and Katie Ledecky's uh, kick. And again, instead of making the Frankenstein, make it like you know, what's working best for you. And, and that's, I think, when you boil it down right. to youth sport and things like that, it, a lot of it has to be more internal. But I think where, where we've gone awry is to, to make money as a professional coach, you need a lot of athletes. To have a lot of athletes, you know, basically you have to do. There's only so much you can do. You can't do as much individual work. To have a lot of athletes, you also have to be a little more, you know, watered down in a sense, you know, because you need to keep a lot of athletes. If you're, you know, too too easy, you're gonna lose a lot. Too hard, you're gonna lose a lot. and and you need a lot to to pay the bills. So there's the financial aspect that we kind of open the pod with. There's the stress aspect of there's a lot of people, and and again, the the expectation as a coach to accept a lot of problems and a lot of, again, one-on-one time with with, with these people, and so their problems become your problems. So this baggage kind of straps into you. Having a lot of athletes means you're going to do a lot of different practices. You might have to run two, three practices back-to-back-to-back Or for some college coaches, you're running two college teams and you're running the club team or the masters team. Now you're up to four practices, eight hours on a pool deck. Again, it, people that are from the outside looking in, like eight hours, you got to play with kids, like eight hours standing on concrete, eight hours like breathing that air, eight or eight hours of eighty-six degree, you know, air temperature, eight hours of
0: eight hours of being a hundred percent like all in energy. As soon wise, as you're not, yeah, that's you cannot, you're, you're like, judged. You
1: know, you're not sitting behind the desk. And now it goes back to the, and your evaluation is four out of five. You know, he really wasn't there that Friday. really wasn't there. You know, and and so it it also, so, I mean, you've got that side of it where, again, the athlete needs to be more about how do I get better as an athlete? You also get the other side of it: how do we evaluate the coach? And I I went into a job interview that I obviously didn't didn't get. And one of the questions I asked, like, how are you going to know if I did a good job or not at the end of the year? Like, what do you mean? It's like, well, you know, you, you're you coming from football. That's wins, losses. And you, you kind of, you know, that, you know, dual meet wins, losses isn't a big deal. And that, you know, if we're going to get to NCAAs, it's based on whatever time they went. And this team doesn't have any NCAA qualifiers yet. How will you know? You know, there's no marker to say, well, you did good, wins, losses. You did good because we have NCAA qualifiers. How do you know? It's like, well, then we're going to go to the evaluations. Of course. It's exactly what it is, and you go right to the evaluation because they don't know. The people that do the hiring, things like that, I, I've never met a, a head athletic, depart, athletic director that was with a swimming background. I've met associate directors that had swimming backgrounds, but never one that, that was the head of an athletic department. It's always been basketball, football. And so, again, a win-loss background versus an improvement background. You know, Again, at some point, um, you, you don't know what you're being evaluated on. And, and and you know I had that debate a long right. time about who the customer is, and I think that boils down to not so much who the customer is, who's evaluating at the age group level. You see you're you're putting a lot of time and energy into getting your kids to practice, paying a lot of money for these sports. How, how do you evaluate if your son or daughter is getting what they want out of this sport? It's like, oh, they made a lot of friends. You know what? It's making friends hanging out at the playground too. So so you know, I, I can see every argument that the parent comes at you with. It's like well, it's healthy. It's like, yeah, it didn't look sick to me before. What do I care? Again, what do they want? What's the evaluation? What does the kid want that is in that practice? Again, do they want exactly what's on YouTube? They want, you know, prescriptive kinds of things. I want, give me 10 drills. You know, I work with masters all the time and they always want like a list of drills. Like, okay. Like it's a roadmap. Like if you're going this road to this, it's 350 miles. Like, you know, it looks like you're, you're, You know, dropping your elbow, so it looks like you have to do 18 lengths of high elbow. You know, again, you you got these, like, weird drill lists that are going to fix every problem. But if you don't have that, if if your thing is, you know, you're making a lot of splash out there, can you change that, like, again, coaching used to be, and you accept the fact that this is the university or this is the school or this is the program I want to be a part of or this is the town I want to live in, then this is the coaching I've got, and I'm going to do the best I can with it, and I've got to utilize that to the best I can. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think we solved Thank it all. Goodness. So
0: everybody can go home and sleep tight. We, we once again, Joel and I have gotten mm. to the bottom of it. So everybody rest easy. It's all good now. We'll take it from here. Um, last thing I want to say on this podcast is magic5.com slash a swim brief. The same link works. Mega extra Memorial Day discount on bundles. So you can actually get a pair an indoor-outdoor pair. My friend Garrett teased me. I took a picture of my Magic 5 from my social media before I swam on the weekend, and he teased me. Apparently, it, this might be a West Coast thing, but he said I was a dork for um, wearing clear goggles. I don't know where you come down with yeah, that, Joel. Very much but,
1: against uh, it as well. Uh, yeah, the last thing I want to see oh. is these kid's weird-looking eyes staring up at me like that. I, yeah, no. Garrett's, Garrett said on um, I guess this must be... Either either I'm well, just... Well, unless, of course, you're, imagine, think, unless you're buying Coast, Magic 5 goggles, then <laughs> yeah. the Clear, the best Clear goggles I've ever seen in my life. That's some good-looking goggles.
0: Hey, uh, 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 you know, I chose Clear. I chose Clear for my Magic 5s. You may choose something else. Um, you can get a bundle where you can get a pair of Clear and be cool like me and get a pair of, um, you know, mirrored or, or fogged... Um, outdoor goggles for, you know, I guess not fogged is the wrong term, (laughs) you know, like smoke outdoor goggles, tinted, tinted. I'm just glad
1: they don't have you on the marketing team. Um, So go ahead. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Seriously. Magic 5com slash swim brief. You can actually stack the 15% discount on the discount. So both discounts apply when you buy something here on Memorial day weekend, you support the podcast by doing so. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, that's all I got for this week. Uh, Instagram.com christy underscore coach CD swim coach on Facebook, YouTube updated when we actually have something that's video content worthy. Um, Christie coach on YouTube at Christy coach, I would say, uh, is the short handle. So, uh, thank you once again, Joel have a, have a great Memorial Me day weekend. I'll do my best to do the same. And, <laughs> see Uh, See you next week.